macro-scale forecasting. You know, come to the terrain prepared and you'll be way more ready to play. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Avalanche Hour Podcast, presented by TAS Gazex, with additional support from Black Diamond Equipment. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. I want to give a big thanks to the folks at TAS Gazex. I'm sure they're busy at work trying to finish some new remote avalanche control system installations before the snow flies. Find out more about their offerings at www.tas.fr. Do you have a heavy touring setup weighing you down? Check out Black Diamond's Helio series. Starting with a Helio carbon ski with waists ranging from 88 to 116, The ski is sure to be light and fast. Explore the rest of the Helio collection, including the Helio gloves and Cirque pack. Faster, lighter, stronger. Are you looking for an avalanche-related job this winter? check out the American Avalanche Association's website for open job announcements. Currently, it looks like the following areas are looking to hire some patrollers. Let's see, Mount Hood Meadows, looks like Lee Canyon Ski Area in Nevada, Monarch and Wolf Creek in Colorado, as well as Bear Valley in California. Whisper Ridge Backcountry out of Utah is looking to hire some cat and heli ski guides. In addition, the AAA is hiring a new pro training coordinator. Check them out. There's some great opportunities out there. If your organization has a new job opening, reach out to us. We'd be stoked to highlight it on our next episode. For today's show, we travel east of the Rockies to check in with the Mount Washington Avalanche Center. We talk to Forest Service Snow Ranger Helen Hoffer as he describes some of the privileges and challenges of forecasting for one of the windiest places on Earth. I'd like to welcome Helen Hoffer to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Welcome to the show, Helen. Thanks, Caleb. I'm uh, really psyched to talk to you. Um, I've... uh, you know, this is a really neat program that you do, and I'm thrilled to have the ability to talk a bit about Mount Washington Avalanche Center out east. Awesome. Yeah, so like Keelan said, he's a forecaster for the Mount Washington Avalanche Center, uh, the furthest east avalanche center in the country, and the oldest backcountry forecast center um, in the United States. So, Keelan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, How did you get to where you are? Sure. Um, I am uh, an Eastern boy through and through. Um, I, I like to say I've never lived west of Jay Peak. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a small rural town in Vermont. Uh, our recreation, uh, it was closer to come play in the whites in New Hampshire rather than stay in the greens in Vermont. And so we came over here a ton. Um, I hiked as much as I could as a kid and just fell in love with the White Mountains. My uh, dad, thankfully, convinced me to grow up skiing, and we skied a ton at Burke Mountain and Jay Peak in Vermont, and it was great. Um, After, you know, I went to school at Bates College in Maine and uh, fell a bit out of the the outdoor scene, Um, you know, focused a lot on school and after that well um as growing up while we were hiking in the whites uh we spent a bunch of time at the amc hut system um fantastic series of eight backcountry facilities um basically a hotel in the woods where you know as a hiker you can 
go stay. They'll feed you. They'll give you a bed. Um, and you can do some really neat trips. Uh, we met a ton of families through that way, and we ended up doing more hut trips with these families. And I was looking for a summer job one summer while I was in school. And um, my sister uh, was working for the AMC Huts, and she uh, threw me a bone, said this would be a great thing to do. And and I, I had a blast working the summer that I did. I worked a summer at Lonesome Lake Hut. Um, the Appalachian Mountain Club does a great thing. Uh, they, they really get people out in the woods. Uh, you know, we have a ton of urban areas within a day's drive of the White Mountain National Forest. And the AMC is great at getting people outside. Um, so I did a summer at Lonesome Lake. I went back to finish my, finish my degree in school. And I uh, realized that I wanted to keep working in the woods. Uh, so I went back, worked another summer with the AMC. And uh, through that summer and fall, I started hearing about this place called Tuckerman Ravine. And um, visited it, thought it was a really neat area. The AMC manages a campground at the base of Tuckerman Ravine, uh, Hermit Lake Shelters. And um, there is a, a caretaker uh, at the campground who manages the site. Caretaker is there year round. And at that time, the uh, prior caretaker who had been there uh, was thinking about taking off. And so I immediately put my name in thinking that sounded like one of the greatest jobs in the world. Um, I was lucky enough and I spent two years there. And I, as much as I love working for the forest service in the snow ranger right now, um, being the backcountry caretaker was, was absolutely amazing. It was great. Tons of freedom. Um, you know, I lived in the woods, maintained the site. It's a, it's a forest service owned site. However, um, the AMC manages it, uh, kind of like a landlord tenant relationship, um, with, you know, rather than a, a, a fee to manage the site, it, it was a, a lot of the money was offset in work that we provided. Um, there was uh, the site sleeps about 100 people in shelters, tents. Um, and then um, the wintertime shows up and, and it's a very different scene in wintertime. Fewer campers, um, but also with the wintertime comes the Forest Service Snow Rangers. And um, I didn't really know when I signed up to work at Hermit Lake that the Snow Rangers existed and that they did what they do. Um, and I got thrown into it um, pretty hard. And the Snow Rangers, they, um, they are the Mount Washington Avalanche Center. There's a group of four guys. And when I was caretaking, this group of four guys, Chris, Brian, Justin, and Jeff, um, they had been doing it for a long time, and they were a super cohesive team. And they, um, they, it was just amazing to watch them operate. And they came up and did the daily avalanche forecasts, and a lot of times they would be looking for partners in the field. And so it was pretty regularly, um, you know, right after breakfast, I'd get a knock on the door from Brian or Jeff and say, hey, they were going up into the field and they needed a partner and hoped I wanted to tag along. Um, so really my introductory to avalanche terrain was getting them thrown into the heart, you know, the birthplace of extreme skiing in America is Tuckerman Ravine. And that was where I learned how to play. Um, and it was a wild ride and it was a blast. Um, I was caretaker for two years. So I got two winters with the Avalanche Center. Um, and, and, and it's fantastic. I um, took uh, some time off from working in the backcountry. I, I worked at various places around North Conway, including a climbing store and roasting coffee. During that time, um, I helped found a, uh, a nonprofit friends group dedicated to supporting the Avalanche Center, Friends of Mount Washington Avalanche Center. Um, and our goal was to just, um, you know, the Avalanche Center is part of the federal government and a lot of dealing with the federal government is trying to get money to do the work that we needed to get done. Um, we were short in a lot of places. 
or the Avalanche Center was short in a lot of places, and that's what our friends group was designed to do, was to raise money and ask the Avalanche Center what they needed, and we would provide those sorts of things. Um, and uh, eventually in 2013, or no, excuse me, later than that, um, I got the job in 2015. And so... Um, uh, it was a time Brian and Justin were both leaving, and um, one of those jobs opened up, and I was lucky enough to get it. Um, the job that I have right now, uh, it's I'm a forestry technician for the Forest Service, and it is kind of split into two parts. In the wintertime, I am a snow ranger, which is an avalanche forecaster for the Mount Washington Avalanche Center. Um, and then the other half of the year, which is June 1st to December 1st, I am trails manager for the Androscoggin District of the White Mountain National Forest. I absolutely love trail work. I signed up to this job um, to be a snow ranger, not really thinking too much about what the summertime work involved, and uh, have grown to absolutely love the summertime work. Uh, trail work, it's a great thing. It's so much fun being outside. We do some really cool things. And I've been super lucky um, to have the opportunity to start melding these two jobs together. Um, I uh, The Granite Backcountry Alliance is a new organization in New Hampshire, and they are devoted to improving the backcountry ski terrain um, on public lands. And as a public land manager for the White Mountain National Forest, um, with wintertime work being focused uh, a lot on skiing and summertime work being focused on trail work, I work very closely with this organization to try to improve ski opportunities, whether that be resurrecting old civilian conservation corps trails that were cut in the 30s and 40s, or whether that be start help helping to appropriately manage illegal glade cutting that has been taking place across the forest, um, and to figure out if it is sustainable and, you know, to kind of grandfather it in and say, this is where we want to focus the use, or if we want to try opening a new area because we think this particular area would be more sustainable. Um, I'm really lucky to now really start to meld these kind of two different jobs into one, um, and really just trying to help, you know, improve backcountry skiing on the White Mountain National Forest year-round. It's a lot of fun. I absolutely love skiing, and this kind of combines everything all into one thing. Um, I feel really lucky to be able to do this year-round. Yeah, that sounds awesome. What was the name of that Trails Association? So it's the Granite Backcountry Alliance, and they have been uh, an official group for about a year now, I believe, maybe going on a little more. Um, they're they're doing some really neat things, and they're really fun to work with. Um, they're part of, you know, an offshoot of the Winter Wildlands Alliance, sure. which is um, an alliance. Uh, it, it's based out west, I think, in Montana. Um, but, you know, what the Winter Wildlands Alliance does is help these groups get up off the ground, and they kind of mm -hmm. network them. Um, the Granite Backcountry Alliance has been very fortunate to have Vermont next door, and um, the Vermont Backcountry Alliance slash Catamount Trail Association, um, those are kind of the same group, and they're forming back into one. I believe it will all be under the Catamount Trail Association. Um, the difference between Vermont and New Hampshire is New Hampshire has this above tree line ski opportunities in the White Mountain National Forest, and, and these opportunities are incredible. Vermont has little to no above tree line skiing. Vermont also tends to be a bit more hardwood than New Hampshire, which is primarily softwood. And, and you know, hardwood tends to grow as a bit more open. It provides more opportunities to have you know, nice natural glades already there with very little thinning. Mm -hmm. um, New Hampshire tends to be really dense softwoods. And one of the things that, we, you know, um, the things that Vermont is doing is great. And we're trying to bring those ideas and what they're doing to New Hampshire. Um, 
we're struggling a bit just with the different forest types, but it's also really helping us guide, you know, okay, well, maybe where we're trying to force it in this dense softwood while the angle and, you know, slope aspect is great, um, it might not be the most conducive to what we want to do. One of the things that this Granite Backcountry Alliance is really trying to offer is, and I think this is super important, um, especially with my winter work being avalanche forecasting in the unique Mount Washington area. We have our forecast area for the Avalanche Center is really steep terrain. Um, you know, we consider 35 degrees up here is beginner terrain. Mm-hmm. And it, it's all of our terrain. It, it, it's it goes basically from flat trees to steep avalanche terrain. There's very few places where you can go on a high avalanche danger day that's safe. We don't have low angle skiing up here. Um, the low angle skiing we do is, you know, dense forest. And so what the Granite Backcountry Alliance is starting to be able to do is now offer these places that would be alternatives on high avalanche danger days. Um, and, as a forecaster for the Avalanche Center, this is super important because we are seeing such high traffic use, no matter what the danger ratings are. Um, you know, it, it were I haven't seen it yet, but I know that at some point we're going to start seeing this really result in some pretty serious accidents. And um, unfortunately, I think we're probably going to see an avalanche fatality um, on our national forest, if not in our avalanche center um, in the next few years, just with the things people are doing and how limited the terrain options are. Um, What the Granite Backcountry Alliance is kind of starting to offer is these fantastic opportunities that will get folks out of these dangerous areas on the high danger days. And and that's, you know, um, our avalanche center, we do search and rescue, we do education and educating these people about a safer place to go means less work for us um, because we won't have to go out later at night to rescue these folks and, and um, you know, having a safe place for people to get their kicks in by, you know, some great turns. Um, it, it, it's really, really fantastic. And I'm psyched about where all this is going. It, it's, we have a long ways to get there, um, but the opportunities are really starting to present themselves and there's some really neat opportunities out there. That's awesome, Helen. That sounds like a, a really, really interesting project. And, you know, it's, it's it makes me think about not only managing terrain when I when I have my avalanche cap on, but also, you know, you guys have to do a lot of, of people management with just the sheer numbers that are up there, I'm sure. Um, I was hoping you could just set the stage a little bit for, for those folks that aren't from New England about – um, some just facts and statistics of Mount Washington and your um, forecast area. Yeah, of course. 15 um, or 20 so years ago, the Mount Washington um, no, Avalanche season, Center operates on Mount Washington in the White Mountain National Forest of New Hampshire. Um, our Avalanche Center is very unique um, in more ways than one. We're the only Avalanche Center east of uh, the Rockies in in the United States, there is another avalanche center up in the Chick Chocks uh, in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the neat things that our avalanche center does is micro scale forecasting. And this means that, um, for uh, a lack of a better way to describe it, we forecast each individual ski run. Um, you know, each gully we issue a danger rating for. The reason we're able to do this is our forecast area is relatively small. The Cutler River drainage is the east side of Mount Washington, and it consists of Tuckerman and Huntington Ravine, along with the Raymond Cataract in between, although that's somewhat of a forgotten area. So um, we have 16 forecast areas, and they are all individual gullies in Tuckerman and Huntington Ravine. The Color River drainage itself is nine square miles. Um, so you uh, you know you kind of think that overall, and it's a super small fa- a super small area. Um, I 
pulled some figures just so I could throw some numbers out there. Um, you know, our forecasted area that we issue avalanche danger ratings for is uh, about 450 acres. Um, our entire management area, the Cutler River drainage itself, is right around 2,000 acres. Um, so it, it's just a tiny area overall. Um, this is the oldest backcountry forecast center in the country. And we, our first avalanche advisory was issued, I believe, in 1958. Um, nope, excuse me, 59 was our first avalanche bulletin was issued. Mm-hmm. Um, and back in the 50s, um, you know, backcountry skiing, it wasn't a huge thing. And people were really just focused in Tuckerman Ravine. Um and that was because the access is so easy. Um, to get to world-class steep skiing, it's a two-and-a-half-mile skin up a road from where you can park your car um, to the base of some super extreme skiing. Um, you know, I, I said before, we kind of consider 35 degrees our beginner slopes. Um, you know, some of our steeper runs, you're looking at sustained angles of 50, 55 degrees. Um and there is some even steeper terrain that, that is skiable around. Um, our snowpack, um, you know, it, it's been described as a maritime snowpack um, with wind effect. In 1934, the world land speed wind record was set on the summit of Mount Washington um, at 231 miles an hour. Wow. Uh, that has since been broken. Um, I think Australia uh, had a um, broke it in the, maybe the nineties or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just, it's the, the winds up here are rage all winter long. Um, we consider since 60 miles an hour, um, you know, really nothing to get super excited about. It moves a ton of snow. There's no doubt about that. Um, but it's, that's just sort of what we're looking at. Um, you know, hundred mile an hour wind days, not at all uncommon. And because of the wind and because of the maritime snowpack, um, our snowpack is just very unique. And it's direct action avalanches are what we experience up here. Very rarely do we see those problems that um, that linger throughout the winter. Um, and this is because a lot of instabilities are just blown away. Um, you know, we don't get surface horror because it just gets blown over. Um, and, you know, there, there are unique problems that, um, you know, our, our, our wind creates. Um, but it, it's a huge factor. Um, and it has taken me for surprise several times. Um, and I always have to recalibrate myself certainly at the start of each winter. And then after the big wind events come through, um, you know, it's uh, Tuckerman and Huntington Ravine. They act very differently. And um, it's, I think the wind is a large part of why we micro scale forecast um, because the snow has moved around so dramatically, Um, you know, a, a centimeter of snow on the summit of Mount Washington with strong winds can easily equal a foot of snow in Tuckerman Ravine. Um, And so you really have to start paying attention to those tiny snow events that come um, and know that wind is going to play a role uh, probably while the snow has fallen. And and you're speaking to uh, different loading patterns in Tuckerman and Huntington. So, um, different aspects are getting loaded from the same wind event. Yes, exactly. Um, it's uh, so the topography of Mount Washington, um, Tuckerman and Huntington Ravine are on they face east, and Tuckerman is south of Huntington Ravine. Huntington Ravine is pretty much tucked right behind the summit cone of Mount Washington, mm-hmm. and just south of the summit cone of Mount Washington is about a square mile plateau um, known as the Bigelow Lawn. And all the snow that falls on the summit, you know, also falls falls on the Bigelow Lawn. 
And then when the winds come through and take that snow from that square mile, it dumps it all into Tuckerman Ravine. Mm. It'll also pick up all the snow that fell onto the west side in the Amanusik Ravine, in Oaks Gulf, um, in Monroe Brook. You know, it is, you can often, um, you know, the, the terrain looks a lot bare on the west side with our prevailing winds coming from the west. Um, all that snow picked up and blown into Tuckerman Ravine. The difference with Huntington being it sitting right behind the summit cone of Mount Washington is it doesn't have that huge plateau to collect snow and it doesn't have the west side quite as prevailing. So we'll often see, um, you know, that same wind event that loads that centimeter of snow into a foot of snow in Tuckerman Ravine, that same wind will clean out anything that is not, you know, frozen water or, you know, super hard bulletproof snow in Huntington, Mm. any loose snow available for transport is just gone. Mm. Um, And so it's not uncommon for us to see elevated avalanche danger in Tuckerman Ravine and no instabilities to even think about in Huntington Ravine. And this is all, they're right next door. but it's just the wind acting, you know, very different, very differently on these places. Well, One I, th- of I, I think that's the, a really good example, or I think you just explained that micro scale forecasting really well. Thanks. And, and, you know, it, it, it's, you know, um, I, it, I, maybe flack isn't the right term, but, you know, um, there's a lot of people who say, you know, how, how come we're just forecasting for these small areas mm-hmm. or, you know, out west they're forecasting for whole mountain ranges, and you guys are focusing just for just for Tuckerman, Huntington, Ravine. You know, what about the rest? And it's 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 you know part of it is the history. We're the oldest forecast center. This is how we've been doing it. We have the system relatively dialed, um, and we can do it well. One of the ways that we're able to micro scale forecasting, and I think this is uh, my guess is not many other forecast centers can say this is. Every day, we issue an avalanche advisory. And every day, before we issue that avalanche advisory, if it's clear, we can see all of our forecasted terrain. Mm. Um, maybe not hands in the snow in every, but we can drive our snow machine to the base of these ravines and, and get a handle, you know, a firsthand experience of everything that happened yesterday and overnight. And um, you know, I can't think of many other places that issue daily advisories that can that can say that sort of thing. Um, and I think that's it's we're able. That's one of the large reasons that we're able to micro scale is we can see our terrain every single day and see how it changes and you know track those changes super carefully. Um, and it's because of the wind and how you may see you know the climber's right-hand side of left gully in Tuckerman Ravine always loads up, whereas the climber's left-hand side is usually kind of scoured out. Um, Being able to see those changes, you know, on a daily basis, we're able to provide that feedback right directly to the public um, and, and really advise people on where to go. And not saying that, you know, a lot of people can't figure this out, um, but, you know, we're, it's short access to this extreme, beautiful terrain. Um, it's two and a half mile skin to get the base from Boston. It's like a three hour drive to the parking lot from New York city. It's like a six hour drive. Um, we're getting a ton of beginners, a ton of people who are, you know, getting their taste of avalanche terrain in our terrain. I did the same thing myself and it is a fantastic place to learn. Um, but there are definitely some hard lessons learned and being able to micro scale, being able to see the terrain every day, and then also being around the terrain every day. When those people come up looking for their, you know, they're getting their feet wet in backcountry skiing or alpine climbing, um, we're there and we're able to tell them, hey, we've been watching the snow um, since the winter started and here's exactly what you need to be concerned about. And you know, it is not uncommon for days when there is elevated avalanche danger that we'll spend an hour 
with an individual party talking to them about their plan for the day and what's good, what's bad, you know, trying to convince them, hey, have you thought about this option? Rather, because what you're saying, you know, maybe it doesn't sound the greatest because this is what I've been seeing over the past week. Sure. Um, and, and I think that's a, an incredible service that our center is allowed to offer. And, and I think it's a fantastic thing. And, you know, the relationships that I've developed through all of those conversations have been fantastic. And I love seeing people when they come back year after year on their tux pilgrimage and they're starting to be more and more prepared. Um, you know, the explosion of backcountry skiing is, is certainly taking off and we're getting firsthand seeing it. Um, and it's great to see people come back more knowledgeable. Um, you know, what we're trying to push beyond the advisory and search and rescue is just educating people as much as possible. Um, you know, come to the terrain prepared and you'll be way more ready to play um, because some of our terrain is pretty darn unforgiving. Um, and it, it's great seeing people learn hire a guide, the amount of avalanche clashes that were classes that we're seeing um, coming up. You know, it's, it used to be, there were a few run a winter and, you know, over the past two winters, I don't think we see a weekend go by that there aren't at least two, if not three or four avalanche classes being run in our terrain. Um, It's really great to see people taking this, their own education and taking education into their own hands and, and really pushing forward. Um, and because of that, we're seeing some really amazing things done. Um, the amount of midwinter skiing that is now taking place, it's super fun to watch. Um, watch what these people are, are are doing and the limits that they're pushing. Um, I'm constantly blown away at what folks are doing. Could you speak a little bit more about uh, how your different user groups and, and do you guys track number of users and... Tuckerman and Huntington Ravines? Um, so I use the dates December 1st to June 1st um, to, you know, it's a six month split. It's also the time of year where we take over search and rescue. Um, sorry if I digress for a minute or two. Um, no, I think search that's and rescue important. in the state of New Hampshire is run by New Hampshire Fish and Game, except for the Cutler River drainage from December 1st to June 1st. And that's when the U.S. Forest Service Snow Rangers, the Mount Washington Avalanche Center, take over as lead search and rescue agency. Um, So those are the dates that I really pay attention to up there. You know, it conveniently roughly lines up with our winter. Um, We average um, about 35,000 visitors in that six-month window in the Cutler River drainage. Um, and, And, you know... It's uh, Tuckerman Ravine, um, birthplace of birthplace of extreme skiing. Um, it's been a place. It's not uncommon to see people come up there with their father and their grandfather because their grandfather came here when he was a kid, and he took his kid there. And we're now seeing these multiple generations, and we call it the Tuck's Pilgrimage. Um, you know, people come here every year because it's it's such a special place. Um, it's super popular spring skiing. Once our snowpack roughly settles out, um, you, you can do some fantastic spring skiing on a very stable snowpack. Um, the wind has hammered it all winter long. Um, you know, seeing 4,000 people come and ski in one bowl in a day. It's a very unique thing. Um, and my guess is, you know, out west, um, that would be a fairly crowded day. And um, but that's just kind of what we deal with here. And and I think it's a really neat thing. Um, you know, you see a couple thousand people all up in one backcountry bowl. Um, there's, uh, you know, eight main ski lines in Tuckerman Ravine. And 4,000 people are competing for turns down those runs. It's um, a very interesting show to watch. It, it's You stand at the bottom of it, and it's basically this giant amphitheater. Um, and you're just looking around, and it, it, it's a really, really neat dance to watch. 
Um, you know, of those 4,000 people come came up, you know, not all of them came to ski. Um, a lot of them came to watch. Um, but, you know, a lot of them carried their skis up. Um, being, again, um, near the urban centers, we're getting a lot, a lot of people who this is the first time they've ever been skiing at a place that wasn't a ski area. And so, um, you know, while we're seeing a lot of people skin up, um, over half our users are still carrying their skis A-frame, um, you know, packing their ski boots or walking in their ski boots. You know, these are big Alpine, you know, Lang or Technica non-walk mode, you know, Alpine race boots that these people are coming up in. Um, you know, these people with, this is their first taste of backcountry skiing, they're not coming with avalanche gear. Um, and they're coming up on days where there are places that there is av elevated avalanche danger. And, um, you know, a lot of what we're doing is trying to find that person who's clueless and might go to the wrong spot, focus in on them real quick and, and, and you know, provide the information that we can. Um, you know, thankfully there are a lot of people who are knowledgeable um, and coming up and, and they're also providing some education but, you know, it, it's definitely, uh, you know, on a busy Saturday when you have that huge crowd and there are some super talented, knowledgeable people skiing some super gnarly stuff. Um, and you just look at the beginners who are standing next to you and they're looking at the same thing and you can just see them thinking, OK, how do I get to the top of that? Um, it, it can be overwhelming. Yeah. So what are, um, what are some of your strategies to, to get the word out about? um the avalanche hazard uh, given the daily advisories i know you guys you have a pretty nice board right does everybody pass through the board with with the advisory on it um the kiosk there or or what are some other strategies yeah. that you guys use so get the um word out? So, I, so i think it's really neat um you know we one of uh there are a lot of drawbacks of having such a small forecast area um but there are some benefits. And, and one of the benefits is that um, accessing our forecast area, obviously there are ways you could come over from the west side or you could come up from the south through the Gulf of Slides or whatever, but most people, you know, 97% of people park at the AMC facility, Pinkham Notch Visitor Center, and they all start up the Tux Trail. And Right when you start on the Tux Trail, we have a huge board, um, and we post today's advisory. Um, and then we also, you know, right next to it have our slats, and we have the avalanche danger for, for Tuckerman and Huntington Ravine um, at that particular slat board. Um, so you go up that, you go past that first sign, and that's your first opportunity to read our advisory. Um, two miles up the Tux Trail, there's a right-hand turn, and that'll take you into Huntington Ravine. Um, if you take that right-hand turn in about a quarter mile, you go past a, uh, a, a backcountry cabin called Harvard Cabin. It's maintained by the Harvard Mountaineering Club. And we post the advisory again, yet it's a Huntington-specific advisory. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll go through and talk about specific hazards in our forecast areas in Huntington Ravine. And then on that flat board that you pass at Harvard Cabin, there is also each um, forecast area with its rating um, on the flat board. And so that's your second, you know, if you're going to Huntington, that's your second flat board that you've passed by with our advisory, with our danger rating. The Harvard cabin, it's maintained again by the Harvard Mountaineering Club. And there's a caretaker there who we work with on a daily basis. And that caretaker is also a great resource to, you know, ask questions about your route. Um, if you don't take that right-hand turn to go to Huntington Ravine, and instead you can continue up the Tuckerman Ravine Trail, you arrive to Hermit Lake Shelters, the campground up there. And right when you go by Hojo's, the uh, famously named caretaker's cabin, um, there is another slat board, and you'll see our advisory again and flats for all of our Tuckerman um, Ravine forecast areas. So, you know, each, the theory is each user who goes up to the terrain passes by, you know, two places where they can read our advisory. Um, Tuckerman Ravine is certainly more 
heavily visited than Huntington Ravine as there are more skiers than climbers. Um, so we tend to stay more in Tuckerman Ravine. Um, but on a busy day, the courtyard in front of Hojo's, the Hermit Lake Shelter's caretaker cabin, um, is where we will stand on a busy day. And our goal is everyone that passes through that courtyard at least gets a, hey, do you have any questions? Um, and, you know, we all know that accosting someone who looks like they're kind of clueless and, you know, laying into them immediately of, hey, what are you doing? Like, you know, we know that just doesn't work. And so it, it's a lot of reading your audience and, you know, the guy who looks clueless and maybe you start talking about something, not directly what your plan is for the day and eventually get into that. Um, you know, or the guy who's decked out and all the super latest equipment. Hey, you start talking about his cool skis because you were eyeing those and you move into, what were you heading with them? Um, you know, reading your audience is super important and gaining their trust in the initial 30 seconds. Um, can lead to a super short, productive conversation of, you know, the skiing's better on the right-hand side today. You were thinking about the left. Um, maybe it's not high avalanche danger on the left. You know, maybe it's just an icy bed surface and the skiing is going to be terrible. Um, you should really go to the sun-softened right-hand side. Um, and, you know, from, you know, the person who was initially taken back that the guy in the government uniform came up and started talking to him, it's suddenly like, oh, I just got advice on where to go skiing because it's going to be better. And if that's what I can get across in 30 seconds, then that's great. And I'll move on to my next person. Um, on those super busy days, rather than getting individual attention, you know, you're trying to gather 30 people together and they might not be in the same group, but you're given your quick spiel on what's good, what's not, what's safe, what you should avoid. And you got to immediately abandon that group of 30 and go to the next group because, you know, they that just keep was coming. the message that we were trying to get across today. And, you know, we got to make sure we get it to everyone. Yeah. And with that many users, I'm sure, I'm sure that's important. Um, with that many users up there, I know there's a volunteer ski patrol program. Can you just talk a little bit about the relationship you have with the Mount Washington Volunteer Ski Patrol? The Mount Washington Volunteer Ski Patrol is a fantastic organization. Um, and like everything with the White Mountain National Forest, um, we couldn't do it without the help of our volunteers. And the Volunteer Ski Patrol is exactly that. It's a group of 20 folks um, who are passionate about skiing, they're um, most, if not all, uh, ski patrol at other ski mountains around New England for the winter. Um, the volunteer ski patrol season is March 1st to June 1st. Um, and so they're with us for March, April, and May, which is typically our busiest months with all the spring skiers. Um, and, you know, it is a huge sigh of relief that the snow rangers get when the ski patrol finally shows up on weekends um, because it finally goes from a staff of four trying to, you know, do all of this to now suddenly we have another 20 hands on deck. Um, and these guys are fantastic. They know their ski area injuries just better than anyone. Um, you know, beyond being ski patrollers at local areas, Often, most of them are, you know, ER nurses or physicians or, um, you know, incredible medical professionals. Um, you know, knowing that these guys are on scene to take care with injuries when they happen um, it, it is really, really great. Um, you know, the terrain that we have is pretty unforgiving. Um, you know, the steep terrain everyone kind of falls to the bottom. Um, unfortunately, there's often rocks or trees right at the bottom of our runs. We don't get that big run out. Um, it's kind of weird, you know, often it's the, the steepest runs have the cleanest run outs and the beginner runs have the ugliest run outs. Um, and so, you know, a fall in our terrain can pretty easily lead to multi-systems trauma. Um, and now we're looking at someone who is really, really hurt. Um, 
and they're a, kind of a long ways from help. You know, it might they might still be in third and fourth class terrain, and even if they fell to the bottom, some of our trails in the winter time become third class terrain. And so, um, having a ski patrol on hand to immediately tend to the person's medical needs allows the snow rangers to start thinking about transport, um, which which can be you know as it often is the most time-consuming part of a rescue. Um, and so, you know, the ski patrol, they provide a wonderful thing. Um, they get our message out. Um, you know, these people, uh, you know, some ski patrollers stay for, you know, three to five years and then decide that they want their spring weekends back and, you know, head back home and, and that's totally fine. Um, but honestly, a lot of them, tend to, you know, I think our longest ski patroller has been doing it for oh, at least 30 years, if not close to 40. Um, these people just love Tuckerman Ravine and, you know, coming there on a Saturday and Sunday and getting to hang out with the people they've been seeing going up there for, you know, the same amount of time. It's, um, it, it's a super special spot and it's easy to get stuck. And, you know, I'm thankful for the work that these volunteer ski patrollers do. Um, it, it's really impressive, the dedication that they have. Um, and, you know, thank God for volunteers because our forest would certainly struggle without them. Um, so they, they, they do a really, really good thing up there. Yeah, it seems like quite the coordinated effort between multiple groups to, to try and keep everybody safe up there and, and at least get the word out. Um, Helen, do you have any good, you got any good rescue stories or any close calls with avalanches you want to share, um, from, from Mount Washington? Um, yeah, I mean, everyone's got a couple good rescue stories. Um, you know, the, the, the one that comes to mind and it's probably, it was cause it was, uh, the most recent, um, big one we had was, uh, it was, not this past winter, but the winter before. So that was, uh, 15, 16. Um, it was a super lean snow year for us. Um, and, uh, you know, it was one of those classic days. It was, you know, getting towards springtime, the snow had softened a little bit during the day and, you know, probably, three o'clock in the afternoon stuff was starting to go in the shade and a, a group of folks came over from the next ravine over and, um, you know, came down Hillman's highway. Um, they hit it just as it had flash frozen, um, all super talented skiers. And, um, one of them slipped and took a long ride down, um, fell about 1100 feet, uh, bounced off rocks. Um, very lucky. Uh, it was, um, thankfully a calm day. Um, you know, the wind wasn't too bad and it was clear. And, uh, on the rare instance, we were able to call in a helicopter. Um, and probably if that had not lined up, um, this guy would have had a very different outcome. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about it, over the past two years and, and, um, you know, it's been really great. The, the guy who took the fall has been also really interested in talking about it. And, um, you know, one of the interesting things that really came out of this one and, um, you know, that I try to tell, you know, everyone is that, um, you know, accidents happen and no matter how much you look back at, you know, what you did wrong and, you know, maybe we shouldn't have been on that slope and maybe it was the wrong time of day. And, you know, everyone misses an edge at some point in their ski career. You know, there is no doubt about it. Um, probably most of us miss a couple edges at some point. Um, and you hope you do it where it's a place that is okay and missing an edge and slipping and falling is going to be fine. Um, Unfortunately, uh, this time the guy missed an edge in a place that, uh, you didn't want to, and, and he paid for it. Um, but you know, was he in the wrong spot, wrong time of day? Um, you know, I'm not the person to say that because, 
everyone's got their own level of acceptable risk. Um, and you know, everyone can Monday morning quarterback, everything. What I see this kind of came of is, um, you know, everyone falls at some point and it's going to happen. And, um, most of us fall in places that it's not of consequence and you really hope you never fall in a place that is of consequence. And that's kind of, to me, what this one boiled down to, um, do I think what the choice that they made was totally reasonable. Yeah, I would have made the exact same choice. Um, you know, it was a group of six people that were skiing. One person fell. Um, the other five uh, made it down safely. Um, and so I attribute it to pure and simple an accident. Um, and it's going to happen to everyone. Um, and, you know, it, it's you know, again, wrong place, wrong time. Um, so he was uh, super lucky. Um, it's been a long road of recovery for him, um, but it's been fascinating, the conversation that's come out of it. And it's it's not often that someone gets hurt and wants to reconnect with the rescue team and, um, you know, Beyond just a thank you, it's been a thank you, and let's talk about this because I think everyone could benefit from it, and I think everyone has. Um, it's been a really neat discussion that's come out of it, and I hope everyone can take away something from that incident that happened. Um, you know, uh, the stars lined up for him, and we pulled off a very quick rescue. Um, from the time he fell to the time he went into the operating room at a level one trauma center was two hours. And, you know, that, that sort of timing doesn't happen and happen often up there. Um, but it was a, uh, you know, the ski patrol helped out. Um, they did exactly what we practice. Um, and everything went very smoothly. Um, so it was a really neat, a neat scene overall. Um, it was, uh, <clears throat> it was, it was a really cool thing. Um, pretty emotional moment being up with his party in the gully as we watched the helicopter take away, go away with him. Um, and it's been really interesting seeing this group of skiers come back over the following winter. Um, and, and see what they've done and how far they've all progressed and what they've pursued since then. It's been a very interesting group of guys to get to know. And I look forward to seeing, seeing what they're going to do. Um, you know, th this is one that certainly stuck in my mind, you know, having been first on scene um, and, you know, a huge part of the rescue and, um, you know, one of those split second decision making things where we all think we hope we have enough training to make the right call in the heat of the moment. Um, and I, you know, we uh, training paid off and every, everything worked out. Um, fascinating incident overall. Um, there's plenty of write ups on our website, um, Mount Washington Avalanche Center org about this. And I encourage folks to to check it out. Um, a, a really interesting event. Yeah, thanks for sharing that story, Helen. Um, seems like you have some other really good resources on the Mount Washington Avalanche Center website. Uh, not only your daily advisories once the winter hits, but some good resources for avalanche education and some information about search and rescue as well. Thanks. Yeah, um, the website is it's something I'm, I'm fairly proud of. Um, it, it, I think we. We launched a new website, um, not this past winter, but the winter before. Um, we switched from Tuckerman.org to Mount Washington Avalanche Center.org. And I believe um, our, our site is, 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 as you said, a great resource. Um, we're constantly changing it. Uh, we're always willing to update. Um, but we try to provide as much information as folks are looking for. Um, and it, it, it's our, our, our center, our website gets a lot of traffic. Um, and we, we, uh, we used to do weekend blog posts. We've since drifted away from those, um, with the help of feedback from, from our followers. Um, 
we're also trying to make as much use of social media as we can. Um, you know, it's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Twitter, they uh, are all powerful tools. And I'm always shocked at, um, you know, how much of a following we get and how, how many people can see, you know, some random video that I took up in the bowl one day, cause I thought it was really cool. Um, and getting to share that experience with thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands of people, um, through the internet, our website, it's, uh, it's really neat. And I'm glad that it's a tool that we're able to make use of. Yeah. What's your, what's your Instagram handle for the avalanche center so people can start following you? Uh, our Instagram is at MWA Center, uh, M-W-A Center. Um, kind of a weird name, I know, but um, it, it, it's a good one. We have it going up there. Um, our Twitter is at Avalanche Center, I believe. Um, I will admit tweeting is not my favorite form of social media. Ian. I tend to do more of our Instagram and Facebook posts. Right on. And people can find you on Facebook as well, I'm sure, by just uh, searching yeah. Mount Washington Avalanche Center. So you guys have the Eastern Snow and Avalanche Workshop coming up. Um, you want to talk just briefly about that, Helen? Yes, I do. I'm glad you brought it up. I had it on my list to make sure we, we hit on. Um, Eastern Snow and Avalanche Workshop uh, will be held on November 11th. Uh, it's a Saturday coming up. I think it's the second no. Saturday in November. This will be the seventh annual ESAW. Um, I'm really psyched for this. This is the third ESAW that I've had a hand in organizing. Um, It will be held at the Laura Hill Eastman Performing Arts Center at Freiburg Academy. It's um, the event is designed for snow and avalanche professionals. And that's kind of where um, snow and avalanche workshops came from. It's a continuing education a continuing education opportunity for professionals, um, which I think is a super important thing. I think sometimes we chase certifications and get the and get what we need, and then our education remains, you know, only just in the field and experience. And I think having the opportunity to learn from other folks in a formal, you know, formal setting, it's a really good thing. That being said, um, you know, I, I really try to encourage everyone who is interested in snow to attend. Um, one of the things that I really took away from ISSW Breckenridge, uh, I guess last year it was, mm-hmm. um, was this the wealth of knowledge that is out there. And as knowledgeable as I think I am about snow, um, snow science, it's a long road that you can go along and no matter how far you think you get on it um you're you're always going to have a lot more to go and being overwhelmed i think is part of it um a lot of our uh snow and avalanche workshop this coming november is uh, largely based on decision making which um is not very techy and even to someone just getting into the sport of backcountry skiing it's something that, you know, there will be something that you can take away. Um, you know, we may have a couple of things that seem a, a bit over over the top as far as snow science goes, but we really try to gear this to, to everyone. Um, I want to offer the opportunity to professionals in the industry to learn and gain something from this. Um, but a large user group that we cater to for our Avalanche Center is, um, beginners and people who are just getting into the sport. And if we can't talk to everyone, um, you know, we're not doing our job right. So, you know, making sure that everyone can learn and benefit from ESAW is super important to us. Um, one of the really neat things about ESAW, it was originally started um, as a fundraiser for the White Mountain Avalanche Education Fund. And the Avalanche Education Fund this year. Um, has now gained 501c3 nonprofit status, um, which is super exciting. And the purpose of the Avalanche Education Fund is to provide opportunities um, for young kids to get their toes wet in avalanche education. 
Um, we've uh, just last year we started providing free courses um, for youth in the area, and we also offer the scholarship for anyone who can apply um, if they're trying to get into an avalanche education course. Um, you know that we would help offset um, the cost of those courses, and and I think this is a really great thing that. Chris Josen, our longtime director who um, moved out west, unfortunately, um, you know, the Avalanche Education Fund was his, his brainchild, and he was really the guy who pushed education with our center. Um, and I think it was one of the greatest things that he offered to the Avalanche Center was um, getting young kids interested and involved in the outdoors and educating them about everything as young as possible um, just means that when they go into the backcountry, they are more prepared and, and, and it's been great to see. Um, so I'm really excited that the Avalanche Education Fund is now an up and running nonprofit status. Um, ESAW is the big fundraiser for the Avalanche Education Fund each year. Um, and having everything now in place, uh, I'm really psyched to see where the the Avalanche Education Fund can go with this and how ESAW will start to progress over the next few years. Um, things are really looking up in the Eastern Avalanche world, and I'm super excited. Yeah, that sounds like some great opportunities. Um, that's, that's a really cool program. I, I haven't heard of anything like that with uh, giving folks, especially young folks, scholarships for avalanche education that's that's awesome so once again the eastern snow and avalanche workshop november 11th uh freiburg maine if you're in the area make sure to to sign up and swing on by sounds like a great event well helen thanks a lot for being on the show uh you're you're obviously very passionate about where you work and recreate and live um and you have such a strong history and connection with that place i think that's that's pretty unique. Caleb, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, you know, I, I I know it's in the east. I know it's not out west. Um, but uh, you know, the Mount Washington it's a really really neat spot. Um, you know, it's easy to get stuck here, and uh, I think it's a great spot. I really appreciate the opportunity allowing me to tell everyone how great the east, the skiing out east, is. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for being on the show, Helen, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Cheers, man. Hey, thanks again, Caleb. I really appreciate it. Well, we find ourselves in the meat of the saw season right now. I hope you all are getting some great continuing education by attending one or many of these great events. The Avalanche Hour is in the midst of a little fall interview tour right now, and we want to incorporate some listener questions to these shows. Check out the lineup of guests at our website, www.theavalanchehour.com. While you're there, grab a hat, can koozie, or some stickers at the store. Thanks in advance for rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It takes less than two minutes. Our artwork was created by the talented Mike T. Music today was performed by Lee Rosevere and Lobo Loco, made possible by the Creative Commons license and can be found at www.freemusicarchive.com. Until next time, keep having fun and stay safe out there.